You are listening to the Business Society Podcast with Melissa Houston, CPA, financial strategist for CEOs, and a Forbes.com columnist. The Business Society community is where business owners come together to learn about real business, common problems, and real solutions. Are you a successful business owner who is now ready to learn how to increase your profit margins so that you can keep more money in your pocket and build your personal net worth? You are in the right place. With over 20 years of experience working with business owners, I share with you real advice that will help you increase the profit in your business and build your net worth. I know you're a genius at what you do, regardless of what profession you're in, and I'm here to help you make sense of the money and other pressing business issues. Have a business problem? We'll find real business solutions. Zoe Berry is a serial entrepreneur, mentor in residence at Techstars, and angel investor. Zoe is the first woman in the U.S. to launch a brokerage retail trading platform in the last five years, at least. After investing in over 40 companies led by women, minorities, and underrepresented founders over the past few years, she has now gone all in on Zingaroo, a new trading platform that aims to make friendly competition the key pillar of their value proposition. While the stock market has appreciated 330% since 2009, which is the longest bull run in history, 86% of Americans have completely missed out. In fact, they've never even purchased a stock in their entire lives. This is surprising given that 106 million Americans fork out over $100 billion per year on sports bets. Recognizing that fact, Zoe aims to bring a fantasy sports-style interface to stock trading, enabling friends to compete with one another in daily and weekly competitions. Zoe is a talented entrepreneur in the top 1% of 1% female founders in terms of how much venture capital she's raised, and she is on a mission to empower women in every way possible. From Zingaroo's hiring initiatives to her personal angel investments. Hey, Zoe, welcome to the Business Society podcast. I am so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me, Melissa. It's really great. This is the first podcast of 2022, January 3rd. Oh, yeah. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Cheers to great things. That's right. It's going to be a great year this year. I feel it. I agree. I agree. I am so excited to talk to you today. Not only are you like a super interesting entrepreneur, but the fact that you have built a trading platform and you're a woman totally intrigued me on this story. So let's jump into that. And maybe if you give us some background details on how you founded this, that would be great. Absolutely. So highlight, I'm one of eight children and I've got five brothers. And so eight, yeah, eight kids. And we were having a very heated dinner table conversation one night. And my brothers and I were looking at the stock market. We were looking at a particular stock. And we each had a different idea on how one could set up a trade and do really well and be successful in investing in this company. And I had actually worked on Wall Street and they were econ majors at Stanford and had not actually worked on Wall Street. And so we got into a pretty heated heated debate about it, but it was a very healthy, fun conversation. 
And so as a Christmas present, I went to try to actually give them the gift of opening trading accounts. And then we could all set up our trades and trade together. And lo and behold, what a great idea. Yeah. It was, <laughs> you know, we really, we really try to, you know, take that dinner table conversation full circle and turn it into a Christmas present. We've gone through many years of a large family. You have to get really innovative around the Christmas present. So we opened up these trading accounts and we quickly realized that everything was solo trading. And there was no way to really share our trades or understand our performance relative to each other. And that was very, very frustrating. When I had this idea for Zingru, I, I joke it's almost as obvious as inventing the post-it note. The ability to share your trades, stack your performance against your peers, see what other people are trading, look at their portfolios, find companies that you might not be aware of, add those to a watch list that you want to check out and look at and do your own research on before taking positions. This just seemed very obvious to me. As it turned out, it did not exist. So in August of 2019, I incorporated Zingaroo and the rest is history. I mean, to even think about starting a trading platform, just the thought of it seems overwhelming to me. So how on earth did you get through that? Like, I, I'm just fascinated by the whole concept from idea to actually making it work. So one of the first things I do, and I'm, I'm a serial entrepreneur, one of the first things I do is really map out an industry. So if I'm going into a new space, and I should mention for people that I got my start working on Wall Street. So my first exposure in the world was in a highly regulated industry. And then I moved over to healthcare and I built a company in healthcare for eight years. And healthcare is also a very highly regulated industry. And so when I look back on my career, my entire experience is something I can really put a feather in my cap to is that I am very interested in how to innovate within a regulated space. And you can't really do the Uber, Airbnb, move fast and break things, sort of Silicon Valley mindset in these industries. There's a lot of very entrenched players, a lot of very entrenched technologies. And when I look at a space, I first start to understand, you know, what are the regulatory bodies that one has to be respectful and thoughtful of? What are the consequences if you break any rules or regulations? And then how do you create an advisory board of people who are industry experts that can help you navigate this? And there really are ways that you can innovate within healthcare and within fintech without doing anything that's going to, you know, trip a wire and land you in hot water or do something that would put any of your loyal customer base at risk. Yeah. I mean, just because it's highly regulated right there, that would scare the bejeejees out of me to start something like that. So kudos to you. I have nothing but respect for the fact that you were, you know, totally inspired to take that on and build this amazing platform. I love it. Are there a lot of women in this industry? No. In fact, something that's come up recently in some of our research is that I am one of the only women to have a broker-dealer license and build a retail trading platform in the past five years. So there's not a lot of women in fintech or on Wall Street in general, but even fewer actually go out and try to you know, build their own team, build their own product. And I'm really fortunate for all the people that took me under their wing and helped guide me through this. It was not something I was aware of when I started this journey at all. And, you know, I think there's a lot of space for women to enter highly regulated industries. Why do you think it is that women aren't really, you know, showing up in this industry? Well, I think women don't show up a lot in a lot of financial services and products, right? There's not a lot of women venture capitalists. And when you are an entrepreneur and you're seeking funding, unfortunately, so much of the money does go to men, right? So 97% of all VC dollars go to men every year. If you're going to execute a business in a highly regulated industry, you do need to raise a lot more money 
more money than you would in a non-regulated industry. And so there becomes this challenge where some women are highly capable, do have great ideas, can build and execute. If you can't get that initial capital on really good terms where it's worth it, because sometimes you can get the capital, but it's not necessarily great. Those terms are not going to be fantastic. And it's going to be something that's really prohibitive for you to build and scale your business. That becomes really challenging. So I think in this day and age with COVID, it's been hard to get to mentors. It's been hard to get to pools of capital that women can tap into. I feel like I built on a 10-year career in the startup ecosystem, and I had a very broad network. And that was something that gave me a bit of an advantage when I set out to build Zingaroo. I love that. Now, so I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm assuming that your mentors would have been male. Yes. In fact, absolutely. I have lots of lots of mentors that are men. A really interesting stat that I was tracking from my last company was that 100% of investors who gave me a term sheet and actually wired, 100% of them were men with daughters. And what I sort of started realizing, and I was, I was an anthropology major, fun fact, was that men who had daughters really believed that women and men could accomplish the same things. And it wasn't really enough to have a mother or a wife or a sister. If a man didn't have a daughter, they just were not as willing to identify me as someone who was capable. And so much of what happens in the startup ecosystem at the very early stage, at at the sort of formation stage, is that VCs are pattern matching. They want someone who looks like somebody else who is successful. So drop out of Stanford, wear a hoodie sweatshirt, look a lot like another entrepreneur that's been successful and raised a lot of money, right? There's that sort of swagger about you. But they see themselves in that entrepreneur as well. And so a big kernel of it is, can you, can you get this investor to see themselves in you? And that becomes really challenging with a gender divide. Women do often frequently go out and build companies that are products for women. And there's a huge market for that. And I'm very bullish on women who do that. But now you have two things that you have to accomplish. One, you have a man who may not recognize the value of your product because they may not use it themselves. And two, they're trying to see themselves in you and pattern match. So you just create a very large hurdle in terms of getting that initial capital and financing. And again, on really good terms where you can build a sustainable business. I have to give a shout out to my dad, okay? Because like I was born in the 70s, sorry to age myself, but I always say that my dad was the first feminist I was ever exposed to because my dad never made me or my sister feel or, you know, even suggest that we couldn't do anything because of our gender. You know, I also was raised with a with a brother and we were all treated like, hey, you're going to go out there and you're going to make something of yourself. So kudos to those men who are looking at it through the lens of their daughters. You know, I, I really do appreciate that. I mean, we still have a long way to go, but at the very least, that's there. What has been your biggest challenge? Well, in COVID, so there's so many challenges that one could have, right? I would say in COVID, doing everything remote and interviewing people remotely has been certainly an interesting challenge. So much of what happens at a startup is having the right culture and fit. People can have the skills And that's usually pretty obvious, engineering in particular, right? You do a code review and people either have it or they don't have it, an ability to code at the level that you're looking for, the expertise, they know a programming language they don't, or they can learn it very quickly, right? Those are hard skills that you can assess remotely. We were two people and $250,000 in the bank, and then myself as a founder, so I guess three, when COVID hit. And we have now grown our team to just shy of 20 people. We've raised eight and a half million dollars, but we had to go from my first two hires 
to almost 20 hires. And so that has been a very, very interesting challenge to build culture, to build, you know, a team dynamic. We've had a couple hacks for that. We run a really thoughtful interview process. And one of them is just a pure culture fit discussion around values. And, you know, we very much look for people that want to roll their sleeves up and, and do actual work. One thing I really recommend against are, you know, people with really want a really big fancy title and then don't want to actually do the work. And they want to hire somebody underneath them to, you know, build their PowerPoint presentations or their models or anything along those lines. So people who really understand that this is a gritty startup and you have to sort of do the actual work yourself. I do lots of things that are very unpleasant. I, I built a desk yesterday, right? <laughs> you know, with my toolkit, building a desk. And you know, I wasn't running around saying I'm the CEO. I don't have to, you know, build my own desk. I get to sit on it today, which is why we're having this, this conversation. <laughs> I'm not sitting on the floor. Those are sort of the things that you look for. And then we've done fun things. We have a team mascot and we send it around to all the different team members and they take fun photos with the team mascot. And those are just small things that are not work-related that sort of get people to have that team spirit. That does not involve yet another, part of my language, goddamn Zoom meeting, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, completely agree with that. There's a lot of Zoom. Now, when you started your business, were you always thinking you were going to be brick and mortar? We definitely thought we would be based in, headquartered in Boston and have office space there. There are some rules and regulations around having, you know, a license and being licensed as a broker dealer. And so you do need physical office space. Some of those rules were relaxed during COVID. But yes, the short answer is we thought that we would be a quote unquote normal startup in an office space. We did not anticipate being distributed. And we are at this point, 50% are people who are based in Boston and 50% are remote and spread all over the country. And it's been working very, very well. But we did a lot of that pre-work, which is to qualify people and lean into culture and do things that sort of create that team spirit in order to enable a positive distributed environment. Nice. Now, you know, for women who want to get into fintech or, you know, basically a male-dominated industry, what advice would you give to them? I think the very first thing is to build an advisory board. And it should be a mix of men and women, right? I remember speaking to a student, a female student at Stanford and sharing with her this exact tidbit of information, which is, you know, build an advisory board. And I said, make sure that you have some women who are female founders and CEOs that have raised money so they can tell you what their experience is like. And she just said, why? Why do I need that? And I said, well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, so don't shoot the messenger. But the experience for raising money is very different for men versus women. And you can look at the statistics. 97% of capital goes to men and only 3% goes to women. So you will have a different experience. I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm not saying it's not enjoyable or fun. Everything presents different challenges. But you should build out an advisory board that is reflective of expertise that you're looking for. And one part of the expertise that you should be looking for is what is it like to be a woman in this environment? So I've been very fortunate. We have a trading advisory board and it's filled with both men and women. We have an education advisory board because we want to bring education into our platform for users. And I've got a lot of women who are mentors for me throughout my entire career from before I even founded a company through to where I am today. And I'm always actively seeking advice. If you ever get to a point where you think you know everything, <laughs> I think it's called hubris. <laughs> You're going to be flying a little bit close to the sun on that one. It's going to be an unpleasant fall. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that completely. 
Yeah. So I would love to hear, let's say like I'm a new client coming to you. So how would you walk me through the process? Sure. Of, you know, maybe signing up for your platform or whatever it is. Yep. So you're going to go through what's called a KYC or AML process. Know your customer or anti-money laundering. Those are, you know, two steps. You're opening a real money trading account. I always say that to people because in this generation, there's a lot of fantasy sports and things like that. Not everyone recognizes that they're going to be opening a brokerage account and trading stocks. So I always make sure to highlight that for people. Once you go through that process, which involves things like, you know, sharing your address, your income, your investment, you know, risk appetite, your goals as an investor, things like that. Then you actually can open an account, fund your account, and then you can start trading. And on Zingaroo, you can trade just like you can on any other retail platform. So equities, options, puts and calls, ETFs, fractional equities, things like that. Uh, we only allow level two options trading. So we're that's a risk appetite, right? We're not trying to get people over their ski tip where they're going to do naked puts and naked calls and invest in something and then have uncapped liabilities where they could end up owing more than they put into a trade. We want to make sure that there's the appropriate guardrails. That's been a challenge for other retail trading platforms. And so we're really thoughtful about the fact that most retail investors are not looking to make a $1,000 trade and lose $50,000, which can happen if you were trading on margin and with leverage and things like that. And then we have some really cool features, which sort of build into that dinner table conversation that I was sharing, which is the whole inspiration for the company. And that's very differentiated versus other platforms and other trading experiences. So one of those is called a bullpen, which is you can join and you can invite your friends to. And once they've gone through the KYC process, you can chat with them and you can talk about your stocks and you can learn from your peers. That is exactly where this whole entire idea with Zingaroo originated. And the name Zinger in Zingaroo is the idea that you might have like a funny comment or a cheeky remark that you would send to one of your friends. So a bit of banter built in. That goes to the idea of a friendly competition and something that I've seen. I've been a big athlete my, my entire life. I've got five brothers. We're all highly competitive. And the idea of learning through play or learning through a bit of competition, I have seen as a coach many times, that is the best way to get people to sort of level up their skills. It could be with a soccer ball. It could be with a stock. And really the idea of just reading a book and seeing graphs and numbers doesn't speak to everybody. And there are different types of learners out there. And by understanding your performance relative to somebody else, you may then begin to do more research on a stock. You may then listen to podcasts on investing. You may then ask questions to people. If something is a good idea or a bad idea, or if I'm setting it up correctly, if this is my end goal, and seeking out advice and perspective. And so the bullpen concept really plays into all of that. Yeah, it's such a unique concept. I love that. Now, curious, how many women investors do you, well, not I'm not ask, asking for a particular number, but would you say that you have majority of male investors or do you have quite a few women? We have quite, quite a few women. You know, I'd have to look at our, our current stats today, but before we launched, we did a bunch of trading simulations, right? And you have to rank order your features. As an entrepreneur, I always say, you know, do something analog before you do something digital. That's part of building a great product and making sure you rank order all the features correctly. And we ran this trading competition that was a fantasy trading competition. So it was not done with real money. And there were 25% of people, about 400 people signed up, 25% of them were women. That's a really, really Love high that. Yeah, if you look yeah. at crypto, crypto, I think most users, it's like 2%. So okay. this was already trending much, much higher. And 
I do think there's something with having a woman at the helm. More women want to join a company where they just see themselves in the person in management, whoever's running the business. I, I absolutely think there's something to be said for that. Okay, so now I want to ask you, I have to go back to that table conversation, right? That dinner table. And how did it become that talking? And I think this is absolutely fantastic that this was a typical dinner conversation, but most people don't talk about things like that at, at the supper table, right? So how did it become a very comfortable subject to take on like with your family about investing and, you know, just basically the financial banter, I guess. Sure. So I would go back a generation or two to my grandfather, Jack Berry, and he had nine kids. So another very large family, about half were women. And he really believed that women should work. And you were not just to, you know, go to college and become a housewife or anything like that. He wanted you to have real life skills, have a paycheck and have a career. So all of my aunts, I grew up in a family where the women are often the breadwinners in their family, super high powered women, either on Wall Street or, you know, an aunt that's a top lawyer at Skadden Arps, that whole mindset of, you know, corporate and, you know, being a breadwinner started back a generation or two. So when it came to my family, my father was rolling that, you know, forward with all of his kids. And I am the only woman who in my family who's gone on to the investing route myself or the company route. But certainly my brothers and my sisters, and this is a, these are very standard dinner table conversations. We talk about all the things that, you know, maybe a knee jerk reaction, be it, you know, politics or investing or, you know, current events and topics in the news. And so we really tried to lean into that as in our family. And the conversations are not sort of soft topics as much at our, our dinner table. I love that because, I mean, it's just not spoken about enough, right? People shy away from these topics. I yeah. think one of the disservices that has happened, and I, didn't, I do think this is a big generational shift. I look back to my parents' generation. One thing that they didn't, well, they had many conversations. One thing they didn't really talk about a lot was money and that is something that our current generation, both millennials and Gen Zers who are up and coming and early in their in the workforce, millennials really sort of leaned into startups. And startups, part of your compensation is with equity. And so all of a sudden you have a group of people who are beginning to talk about equity very, very early because they're getting it at the companies where they're where they're working for. And so compensation packages is something that you're almost crowdsourcing knowledge, right? So millennials are very willing to be chatty about what are you making? What's your cash? What's your equity? What's your trade-off? When did you get the equity? What kind of vesting schedule do you have? Do you have a six-month cliff, a one-year cliff? Is it front-end loaded, back-end loaded? Do you have performance grants or performance grants to your vesting? You know, these are conversations that people are having very, very fluently. Then you have Gen Zers that are not just having that conversation, but posting it on TikTok. And they're publicizing their compensation information or they're publicizing their views on, you know, cash versus equity or working in a startup. And all of this is is actually quite beneficial for people because now all of a sudden it doesn't become so crazy to think about, I want to buy a share in a company where I use the product. And that's usually a really good starting point for people if they're starting to think about what do I want to invest in? I should be invested in the stock market. Okay. You know, ETFs, that's really easy. I'm not sure. I think an industry, a basket would be really helpful. But now maybe when I want to support a company that I know very, very well. And then from there, you can start doing your research and say macro trends. Here's what I think is going to happen. So here's how I might set myself up for 
you know, the next six months, the next year, the next five years and things like that. But it starts with this conversation around how am I being paid? Yeah, I love it. Normalize it, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. You clearly are an extremely intelligent woman. If there's one thing that you want people to take away from this conversation today, what would that be? I think people should be invested in the stock market. First of all, you should believe in yourself and you should be, believe in your ability to go out there and understand something that might seem foreign or esoteric, like equity, right? Securities, you should really understand sort of how you're setting yourself up for the future in terms of your financial health. I think anytime you're looking at your life, your career, your objectives, financial health should be one of them. So even if today is not the right time for you to start investing in the stock market, starting to think about when the right time would be is an, an important concept. Understanding you know, how much debt do you have? Do you want to pay off some of the debt faster in order to invest in something else? Another aspect of your life, should you become a homeowner? These are all things that play into financial health. And I think people really sort of taking ownership of that and not just ignoring it and put being an ostrich with your head in the sand saying, oh, this is not, I'm, I'm 22 and, you know, I'm ready to go out and have fun. I'm, I'm not focused on financial health and wellness. It can be boring. It can be dry. But it's also really exciting when you can retire in the future exactly. <laughs> and have a nest egg and go on vacation and do things like that. And you're not just racking up credit card debt. Exactly. Money doesn't buy happiness, but it buys a lot of opportunity. Exactly. And, and who knows, if you do it right, then maybe at some point you become a founder of a company yourself. I mean, I mentor so many people and they say, you know, should I do it? Should I not do it? And I always say, look, if you're thinking about becoming a founder, it's not about building a billion dollar business. It's not about saying, I want my first company to be a hit and be a unicorn. More frequently, 90% of startups fail. It's what are you going to learn and are you going to fast track your career? You know, should you go to business school, which is a couple hundred thousand dollars, and is that going to accelerate your career versus getting paid to build a business? And is that going to accelerate your career? Are you going to get a better network because you're meeting other founders, other CEOs, exited entrepreneurs? VCs, titans of industries, that going to fast track your career versus taking on debt and going to business school. And those, those are questions that, are, you know, each person has to make their own assessment. But believing yourself and believing that you can do it is a good, good goal for 2022 for people. I love that. That's fantastic advice. Now, if people want to reach out to you or find you, follow you on social media, where can they find you? Very easy. My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at Zoe Barry CEO. So Zoe, Z-O-E. Barry, B-A-R-R-Y, CEO. And I'm very approachable, very reachable. Feel free to DM me, comment on a photo or anything like that. I really, you know, I try so hard to give back to the community. And there's so many women that are out there that are thinking about these things. And there are also men that are out there thinking about these things and they want perspective and advice. And, you know, I really, I try to be as approachable as possible for people. I want to pay it back for all the people that took me under their wing. I love that. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much. We're going to leave the links in the show notes for anybody who's listening and wants to reach out. And thank you so much for coming on the show today. It has been such a fun talk. Thank you, Elsa. I really appreciate it. Have a great rest of your afternoon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Business Society Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with someone you think would love it. Until next time, I'm Melissa Houston. 
And never forget, nobody will ever care about your money as much as you do. So never give your financial power away. 